over a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we finished up the Knights of the Old Republic comics in a special double episode and then took a break for a week to attend to real world bullshit. Now in episode 22, we introduce the biggest stories we will cover in the entire show. That's right. It's finally time for us to talk about Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2, the Sith Lords. Welcome. Make yourselves comfortable because we're going to be here for a while. I'm Luke. That's Kelsey. And there's always a bit of truth in legends. Welcome to the Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2, the Sith Lords introduction episode. Today, we're going to get everything ready to start the story of Knights of the Old Republic next episode. We'll discuss the galactic events that occurred from the end of our last story, which is the Knights of the Old Republic comic miniseries, War, until we awake as an amnesiac Republic soldier on the Endar Spire. We are going to start with some notes about format changes, but since we won't be implementing them until the next episode, we will save it for the next episode. So, let's start with some questions you might have about this episode. Why are you talking about Knights of the Old Republic 2 so much? Doesn't it occur after Knights of the Old Republic, and isn't this a Knights of the Old Republic intro episode? It's just because Luke really loves it, right? Well, first of all, yes, Luke does really love it. But second, if we're being honest, you can't talk about Malachor 5 without talking about the Sith Lords, and frankly, you can't introduce Knights of the Old Republic very well without Malachor 5. Wait, how did Knights of the Old Republic have a canonical playthrough, and how is there a canonical Revan when the game was all about player choice? Uh, well, the great thing about Revan is that, well, you're Revan. Uh, the other great thing, and the thing that allows it, us to discuss it like this in the first place, is that Lucas Arch, Lucas Arts established canonical playthroughs for both Revan and Mitra Surik in the Legends continuity. Who or what is Amitra Surik? That's the canonical name for the player character of Knights of the Old Republic 2. In-game, she's known as the Jedi Exile. How are you going to talk about Knights of the Old Republic without spoiling the big reveal? We're not. We're going to spoil it early and often, perhaps even by the end of this episode. That won't be a problem for most of you, seeing as Knights of the Old Republic is the reason why you're here, but wider audiences aren't aware. However, we won't be shortchanging the reveal, as we'll talk about it in much greater depth when we get there. How many episodes will the show spend focusing on Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2? We don't know, but probably a lot. You saw how many episodes we did on the comics leading up to it? We're going to be here for a while. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Isn't this Q&A section just an excuse so you don't have to explain these things via exposition? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, and finally, okay, so if this is the introductory episode for Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2, what will it cover? Well, we're glad you asked. We're going to talk about everything that happens from 3962 through early 3956. That's the time from the end of the Knights of the Old Republic comic miniseries War and the beginning of the original Knights of the Old Republic. This will include the end of the Mandalorian Wars, Revan and Malak's flight to the Unknown Regions, and most of the Jedi Civil War. So, bridging the gap between the Mandalorian Wars and the Jedi Civil War. These are years 3962 to 3956 BBY, or before Battle of Yavin. 
About six years elapsed in-universe between the end of War in early 3962 and the beginning of the original KOTOR video game in 3956. During this time, everything we know about the galaxy changes, and each of those changes centers around a little-known backwater world called Malachor V. Before we get to Malachor, though, we need to take a broad look at how the Mandalorian Wars play out. The last time we stepped back from our story to survey the wider galaxy was in episode 14, which was just our second episode on the Knights of the Republic comics, so it's been a while. But there's just one small problem. There isn't a single cohesive accounting for 3962-3956 anywhere, not even on Wikipedia. So we had to cobble one together from an eclectic set of sources, all released between 2003 and 2012. Those sources include Knights of the Old Republic, Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Essential Guide to Warfare, The Essential Atlas, Star Wars, The Old Republic, Massively Multiplayer Online Game, its tie-in novel Revan, The Knights of the Old Republic Comics, The KOTOR Tabletop Gaming Campaign Guide, two official Prima video game guides, a side adventure for the tabletop game that was considered part of the Legend continuity, and likely others we've forgotten. Fortunately, Luke is one of the foremost KOTOR scholars of our age. All right. The Mandalorian Onslaught. The last time we took stock, the Mandalorian Onslaught was just beginning in 3963 and would continue to play out as the backdrop of the KOTOR comics. Despite suffering defeat on two of the three fronts at Amanoth and Iridonia, the onslaught accomplished its main objective of spreading Republic resources thin. Additionally, two other key events happened before 3963 was out. First, and separate from the onslaught, the Mandalorians invaded Onderon from their secret base on Duxun, using the planet as a staging area for the next phase of their attacks. Second, Revan and his Jedi joined the Republic to fight against the Mandalorians, as we discussed in greater depth in episode 20. As 3962 dawned, the Mandos looked to build off their, the success of their onslaught and so launched the Mandalorian Triumph. The two-pronged attack sought to establish a foothold in the core worlds from which to attack Coruscant. Mandalore the Ultimate eventually settled on attacking Duro because... It would allow them to stifle the Corellian trade spine and, more importantly, had highly advanced orbital shipyards to raid for ships and other war material. The shipyards would also be used as a staging area for the final push against the Core Worlds as Onderon was too remote to serve that purpose. They would have succeeded in taking Duro too, not for some timely intervention by the Jedi. The Mandalorian Triumph. In 3962, two battle groups launched simultaneously one from Bunta in hot space and the other from Vizun in the Outer Rim, signaling the beginning of the Mandalorian Triumph. The Triumph would eventually become the all-time high watermark for Mandalorian civilization, but it didn't look that way early on. The Mandalorian detachment that departed Bunta won a quick victory but was utterly annihilated at the Randon system. The Republic had bolstered the system with more ships in preparation for a Mandalorian attack on the important trade system, as they had during the Great Sith War. The Mandalorian fleet that set out from Mujun, however, sacked 11 street systems on its way to Duro. Beginning at Ares, the Mandalorians won crushing victories at Nazri, Ambria, Zeltros, Kaminar, and Cato Neomoidi, uh, amongst others. A particular note was the Battle of Ares III, which saw the Mandalorians employ scorched earth tactics, lighting fires that would still burn more than a decade later. 
When the Mando fleet arrived in the Corellia Duro system in late 3962, the Republic had been on the defensive for nearly two full years. What remained of the Republic fleet was ragged, their soldiers exhausted and demoralized. Worse yet, the Mandalorians were ready, willing, and able to take full advantage. The Battle of Duro Atten Ran, a companion in Knights of the Old Republic II who fought at Duro, would later say that Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders riding, quote, basilisk war droids rained like meteors onto the orbiting cities, end quote. That act alone killed millions, but the Mandalorians were far from finished. They again used scorched earth tactics, laying waste to the planet and forcing the native Duros to ally with their Mandalorian invaders to stave off total destruction. Finally, the Mandalorians set about plundering Duro's orbital shipyards in an attempt to capture large amounts of war, war material and a staging ground. The Mandalorian fleet appeared to have victory well in hand, but they but were pinned against Duro by the arrival of a fleet of interdictor cruisers. Led by Revan, Malak, and Mitrasuric, the fleet of interdictors prevented a Mandalorian escape via hyperspace from behind and pushed them against Duro on the other side. This timely Jedi inter- intervention kept precious war material out of enemy hands, likely saved Duro, and reinvigorated their remaining Republic soldiers to fight back. Revan, Malak, and Surik weren't there to break the Mandalorians, but to aid their allies. Republic soldiers and Jedi Knights forced a Mandalorian retreat, liberating Duro from its short occupation and preventing the theft of any war material. Immediately after the battle, uh, Supreme, Supreme Chancellor Tolkressa bowed to public outcry and political pressure, appointing Revan as the Supreme Commander of all Republic forces. Before 3962 was out, the Mandalorians also unsuccessfully attacked Bespin and the Empress Tita system, attempting to cut off the Republic's supply of Tabani gas and carbonite. Revan's promotion was just what the Republic needed after more than two years of nearly unbroken losses, many of which involved the wholesale destruction of entire worlds and species. Jebel, Sirocco, Cathar, Ares III, and Duro being but a few examples. After his appointment, however, Revan would outdo them all both in terms of tactical genius and his determination to win at all costs. After becoming Supreme Commander, Revan was able to get the Jedi more involved in the war. In addition to providing badly needed soldiers and ships, Revan could now fully integrate his battle strategy and thus fill leadership positions with his most trusted allies. Malik was promoted, becoming Revan's second-in-command, with Mitra Surik being named general, third in line of succession. Revan's battlefield prowess became so respected that the Mandalorians even started to fear him. Candorous Ordo later remarked that Revan's strategies and tactics defeated to the best of us, even Mandalore was taken aback by the ferocity, tenacity, and subtlety of Revan's plans, and quote. Revan's leadership came with a heavy cost, however, as he began taking moral shortcuts to win battles. The Supreme Commander eventually saw no issue with sacrificing civilians or even entire worlds to defeat his enemies. In fact, Revan's brutality in prosecuting the Republic counteroffensive would soon equal that of the Mandalorians as he began to fall to the dark side. In turn, Revan's loyal soldiers duly adopted their leader's mentality. The Republic Counteroffensive and the Fall of Revan The counteroffensive lasted from 3961 to 3960, with the Republic capturing all the territory it had lost and pushing the Mandalorians back into the Outer Rim. 
though the chronological order of events is hazy, it appears that Revan began using his new morally dubious shortcuts early on in the counteroffensive. Perhaps following his mission to Dantooine with Malak in early 3961. On Dantooine, the old friends discovered an ancient ruin that contained a star map placed there by the Rakato when they ruled the galaxy some 25,000 years earlier. The map contained one of five pieces of the star chart leading to a legendary Rakatan superweapon, the Starforge. Not long after, Revan traveled to Kashyyyk alone and located another star map. He also seems to have visited Korriban in short order but did not find its star map just yet. Returning to the counteroffensive, Revan oversaw the liberation of Terrace by Republic forces after nearly three years of Mandalorian occupation. Showing the bravery that so endeared him to his, his soldiers, Revan personally led a bloody ground assault in the Undercity. The liberation freed a number of slaves with Revan, with Revan personally rescuing a young Force-sensitive Cathar named Jahani. The child was so impressed by Revan's kindness that she decided to join the Jedi Order. Then, in late 3961, Revan alone made his most shocking discovery while scouting four base locations in the Outer Rim. He stumbled upon a long-forgotten agrarian world on the edges of old Sith space called Malachor V that was off-limits to the superstitious Mandalorians. Revan wished to know why, and, and deep in the depths of Malachor V, he found his answer, an old Sith temple called the Treus Academy. It was there that Revan's unquenchable thirst for knowledge finally got the better of him, and he was seduced to the dark side. After returning from Malachor V, Revan introduced Malak to the dark side, and thereafter the two friends fell together. Unbeknownst to Revan, his visits to Korriban and Malachor V alerted an unseen enemy lurking in the unknown regions to his presence, the Sith Emperor, Vitiate. By late 3961, the Mandalorians had seen all their territorial gains undone with one exception, their continued occupation of the inner rim, inner rim world Onderon and its companion Lundoksun. The Second Battle of Onderon was a definitive Republic victory, though the Mandalorian occupiers devastated the Great Walled City of Aziz during their retreat. The Battle of Duxun, on the other hand, saw the Republic forces lose ten soldiers for every Mandalorian killed. Mandalore the Ultimate and his followers had been fortifying the Devil Moon in secret since 3996, and they would not surrender it lightly. Revan ordered Surik to retake the moon, and she obliged despite 36 years of minefields, anti-air turrets, concealed traps, and the ferocious beasts who called the jungle home. Think Space Vietnam with added sci-fi jungle creatures. Jedi and Republic soldiers, along with a host of battle droids, fought in scattered formations with Shirk implementing Revan's plan to use hundreds of coordinated feints to probe Mandalorian defenses for weaknesses. By the end, Shirk's forces had been reduced to one quarter their original strength, but the General led her forces on a last desperate charge across a wide open minefield to take the final Mandalorian stronghold. Those who survived found a skeleton crew garrison of warriors who volunteered to stay behind after Mandalore the Ultimate saw that the battle was lost. Defeat at Onderon and Duxun pushed the Mandalorians out of Republic space for the first time since 3964. Revan and his forces pursued, seeking to ensure they could never leave the Outer Rim again. The final battles of the Republic counteroffensive played out in early 3960, with Revan's forces chasing the Mandalorians through the Outer Rim. 
The Mandalorians ragged and their numbers were swiftly dwindling, but they exhibited some of that characteristic Mandalorian stubbornness by winning two battles before Malachor V. A small defeat, uh, or small Republic defeat occurred at Lukazek, but the Battle of Jagus Cluster would prove to be a significant loss. In the Outer Rim system, Revan and Malak fought together but were forced to retreat by Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders commanded by Cassius Fett. The Mandalorian leader won the title of Most Wanted Fugitive in the Galaxy after boarding a Republic cruiser and slaying a fleet commander in single combat. The victory at Jagus Cluster was too little too late for the Mandalorians, however. The Republic won contest in a few small systems before liberating Althir. The Second Battle of Althir came 16 years after the first, which was the initial invasion that sparked the Mandalorian Wars. For their roles in turning the war around and saving the Republic, Revan and Malak became major celebrities across the galaxy. These growing cults of personality, especially around Revan, were most apparent in the soldiers that they commanded. By the end, Revan and Malak's forces would have followed them to hell and back, which they did. Unfortunately for all involved, Revan and Malak had also fallen completely to the dark side. A fact the Republic and Jedi wouldn't learn until it was much too late. By mid-3960, the counteroffensive was at an end and Revan prepared to draw his enemies into a trap and end the war right there. He had a location picked out. He had his enemies on the run. Now all he needed was a weapon. The Mass Shadow Generator. It wouldn't just be any weapon, though. Revan imagined the spectacle of death, the likes of which had never been seen. In utter secrecy, Revan ordered one of Mitra Sirk's lieutenants, as a brack named Baudur, to build the weapon. Following Revan's instructions, Baudur created his masterpiece, a superweapon called the Mass Shadow Generator. That's super weapon number six for the show, if you're keeping score at home. Curiously, and with no explanation given, Revan didn't tell Malak about the weapon. The MSG took its name and inspiration from mass shadows, the naturally occurring hyperspace signatures on large planetary bodies. A large enough celestial body's gravity well projected into hyperspace, causing a mass shadow capable of pulling careless ships from hyperspace. Imagine that same principle, but utilized offensively and with the gravity turned up to 11. Upon activation, the MSG would project an artificial gravity well strong enough to not only pull hundreds of ships out of orbit simultaneously, but also crush their durasteel plating and shields like crumpled up paper balls. Any crew unfortunate enough to be on those ships would be killed almost instantly. If the massive decompression and being crushed didn't do the trick, making planetfall at terminal velocities sure as hell would. Obviously, anything on Malachor 5's surface would be flattened, either by the small singularity or that whole hundred of ships making simultaneous unimaginable planetfall thing. The MSG was the centerpiece of Revan's trap at Malachor 5. Mitra Surik would order activation at the time in battle designated by Revan, while Baudur was on standby to provide tech support and throw the switch. That brings us to Canon Alert 19. A superweapon called the Mass Shadow Generator has appeared in canon in the book The Rebel Files as part of an in-universe dossier to Rebel Alliance intelligence officers that is subsequently passed on to the Resistance. The Mass Shadow Generator is listed along with other superweapon projects the Empire was supposed to have knowledge of, though Rebel officials believed it to be a tall tale from the battle days. 
While the device is called the mass shadow generator and said to be able to control gravity and manipulate hyperspace in some way, just like the one in Legends, the picture accompanying the description looks more like a gravity well station from the 2006 video game Star Wars Empire at War. The actual mass shadow generator itself was never shown in Legends. With his superweapon complete, Revan began luring the Mandalorian fleet into his trap. He had the perfect bait, too, a fleet of damaged Republic ships that looked ripe for the taking. Tactically and culturally, the Mandalorians literally couldn't resist the chance to cripple the Republic's active navy and raid some ships to fortify their fleet. In preparation, Revan assembled all the ships the Republic and Jedi could muster in the Malachor system and split it in two. Revan took half the fleet and gave Mitrasura command of the other half. The bait fleet comprised of battered limping ships. Surik's fleet stayed out above Malachor V to entice the Mandalorians while Revan took his detachment out of the system to avoid detection and wait to spring his trap. Once the Mandalorians were fully invested in the attack, Revan's fleet would emerge at their rear, catching them in the shooting gallery between the two halves of one of the largest Republic fleets ever. Only problem would come if Revan's fleet were somehow delayed outside the Malachor system, which would then give the Mandalorians enough time to crush Shirk's already damaged fleet. Truly, it was a well-laid plan and trap, but we had you know what they say about the best laid plans of mice and men, right? Yeah, I remember that book. <laughs> Malachor 5 by the numbers, sort of. We'll get to the battle in just a moment, but first let's talk about its size. Much of the big picture from the battle is a mystery as we don't know exactly how many ships or soldiers fought. Indeed, we only know of six individuals who definitely, who definitively participated in the Battle of Malachor V. For the Republic, we know Revan, Mitra Surik, and Baudur. The Mandalorians, for their part, were led into battle by Mandalore the Ultimate on his flagship and Candorus Ordo, who also fought. The future Darth Nihilus was of unknown allegiance. Their first-hand accounts provide enough detail that we can make some educated guesses or at least reckless speculation about the size of each side. Years later, Ordo recalled the sheer overwhelming nature of the battle, saying, quote, the two fleets filling the space around Malachor V, outshining the stars, end quote. The Mandalorians sent every ship they had remaining into battle, which likely, but is not confirmed to have included a few Mandalorian dreadnoughts. A single one of those massive ships held roughly 34,000 soldiers and crew if Dorjander Case's estimate from the Knights of the Old Republic comics miniseries War is to be believed. Further, Baudor claimed the Republic fleet was the largest they could muster, and we know at least a few Centurion-class battlecruisers took part, and those carried a crew of about 7,400. Finally, each, each side is said to have brought 100 ships to the battle, so it's probably safe to assume that hundreds of thousands of soldiers fought at Malachor V. More than a million soldiers isn't inconceivable, but we're way out in left field on the back of the map kit. Oh my god, back of the napkin math now. Also, I mean, everybody listens to podcasts, so they can hear someone do math out loud. What's our selling point? So the Battle <laughs> of Malachor V, when the Mandalorians arrived above Malachor V, they took the bait hook, line, and sinker. Mandalore, the Ultimate's fleet, began tearing through Surik's and Revan's fleet, was nowhere to be found. In the ensuing battle, Surik's fleet was decimated to one quarter its original strength. Later, Bowder would describe the ferocity of that Mandalorian attack. Hiram, start quote, I remember the ships. 
the last stand of the Republic, the tattered remnants of our fleet, the largest we could gather, but it was damaged, weakened, and vulnerable. The Mandalorians couldn't resist. They turned to us like beasts, shredding our ships to scrap as we fought back. End quote. Revan hadn't accounted for that pesky Mandalorian scouting party problem, and his detachment was significantly delayed in mopping them up. When Republic reinforcements finally arrived, Sirk's fleet was in dire straits, barely holding off their attackers. Revan had arrived just in time and slammed the trap shut in the end was near for the Mandalorians. With Revan's fleet attacking from the rear, the Mandalorians were pinned into a shooting gallery with Sirk's hobbled fleet on the other side. The Mandalorians tried to fight through Sirk's detachment, but the Republic line and its resolve held firm, and Revan's fleet began tearing into the Mandalorian flank. Seeing the writing on the wall, Mandalore the Ultimate decided to die fighting like any good Mandalorian should. He challenged Revan to single combat, an, an offer that Revan, of course, accepted. The two leaders fought fiercely on the bridge of Mandalore's flagship, with the Jedi eventually taking the upper hand, mortally wounding his foe. As Mandalore lay dying, the old Tong removed his mask and revealed that he had been deceived by the Sith for, for 18 years. Coughing up blood, Mandalore gave Revan the coordinates to a world in the unknown region called Rekiad, which would hold proof of his claims. Revan then took the Mask of Mandalore as a trophy and to stop the Mandalorians from choosing another leader. As Revan returned to his ship, the Jedi and Republic forces began an all-out push to meet in the middle <clears throat> to, to meet in the middle and finish off the Mandalorians in the process. In that moment, with each side suffering heavy casualties, Mitra Surik saw the sign she needed to implement Revan's command. Wordlessly, Surik gave the order to Baudur, and he activated the mass shadow generator. Revan would make a desert and call it peace. The activation of the mass shadow generator caused two immediate cataclysms, one the tangible and one within the force. The first was the shocking and immediate loss of life at Malachor V and the total fracturing of the planet to its core. In 3951, Bowder would recall the activation, telling Sarek, Remember the look you had when you turned to me. It's the longest you've ever looked at me. You didn't say anything, just a nod. Events moving move quickly then, even in my dreams. Flashes, explosions, you falling. I could feel the pain around me. And then the memory, the drifting hulks of the Mandalorian chips, the dead. Allies, friends, strangers, and the echo lingering, the sound I awaken to in my nightmares, end quote. In an instant, the ships and everyone aboard caught within the MST's blast radius were crushed and ripped down toward Malachor V's surface at terminal velocity. Those that weren't destroyed on impact slammed into the planet with such force that they became part of Malachor V's surface. What little of it remained, the ships caught within the blast radius that didn't collapse into planet formed an orbiting graveyard of broken ships, tenuously held together by Malachor remaining gravitational anomalies. The planet itself, which had once been a lush, beautiful place, was cracked to its core, incinerating much of its planetary mass. The resulting celestial object retained the name Malachor V, but it was no longer a planet. What was left was little more than a small mass of planetoids, held loosely together by gravity, orbited by crumpled starship debris. The only thing on Malachor V that survived, physically untouched by the activation, was the Treus Academy. Wounds in the Force 
The second cataclysm wrought by the mass shadow generator's activation followed directly from the first, the sudden massive loss of life at Malachor V. The sudden anguished screams of the dying howled through the forest, creating three wounds. One centered at Malachor V, and the other two were carried by survivors of the activation. A wound in the forest is an intensified type of a disturbance in the forest. Normally, disturbances in the forest were only experienced by force sensitives who were in close proximity to a traumatic event or when a force sensitive experienced trauma occurring to a loved one through the force. Wounds in the force, however, seem to have no distance or affinity limitations. Force sensitive beings and Jedi with no love or connection to anyone at Malachor V felt the mass shadow generator slaughter as far away as Alpharides and Coruscant. Further, while disturbances in the force could mani- manifest with physical symptoms, the wounds caused by the mass shadow generator's activation were so powerful that they produced visible echoes that moved through the force like ripples in a fountain. In fact, the epicenter of each wound pulsated with the pain and suffering from, de- from the death and dying. In addition to the one around Malachor V, there were two walking wounds in the force. Mitra Surik, who possessed an innate talent for forming intense force bonds with others, passed out from the intense pain caused by the mass shadow generator immediately. Surik was the closest Jedi to the MSG's vortex who survived the activation, and the resulting shockwave through the force nearly killed her. However, in a feat never repeated before or since, Surik subconsciously blinded herself to the force to save her life. Despite cutting herself off from the forest, Surik would one day reestablish her connection and find that the wound was still present, and it had greatly increased her power in the force. The wound that surrounded Surik was so overwhelming that both Kraya and Vruk Lamar, among others, believed it could cause the death of the force. Indeed, despite being blinded to the force, Surik's mere presence sent echoes of suffering from Malachor V through the force. The second walking wound in the force was found on the surface of Malachor V, far below Surik's ship where she lay unconscious. Only two individuals survived the activa- who survived the activation stumbled across Malachor V's post-apocalyptic hellscape. One was the human male who would become Darth Nihilus, and the other was his first victim. Nihilus's wound in the force manifested far differently than Surik's, as he was turned into a being of pure hunger who could only sustain himself by consuming the force energy of living beings. In an attempt to save himself from wasting away to the hunger, Nihilus subconsciously drained the force energy of the only other survivor. Years later, Nihilus mastered this force drain on a planetary scale. However, needing a means to Needing a means to escape Malachor V, Nihilus used his greatly increased power in the Force to rip one of the ships from the planet's orbital graveyard. That ship, the Ravager, is somehow the only named ship we know from Malachor V. Nine years later, Nihilus's unstoppable force would run headlong into Surik's immovable object. Consequences. The total number killed... By the mass shadow generator is an unknown, but like the number of combatants, it had to be in the hundreds of thousands. In the wake of the activation, the Mandalorians who survived immediately transmitted their unconditional surrender and agreed to total disarmament. Revan, of course, accepted. Curiously, the Mandalorians weren't the only ones to suffer heavy casualties. Thousands of Republican Jedi combatants were within the MSG's blast radius and died as a result. In fact, in the final accounting, it was hard to escape the conclusion that the only winner at Malachor V was Revan. 
When setting his trap, Ruffin had moved all the pieces into place and knew who would be caught in the blast at a radius at activation. He could have called for an immediate retreat or drawn his own soldiers out, but the mass head generator wasn't ever intended solely for the Mandalorians. It was a systematic purge, one Reverend carried out in total secrecy and which was a total success. In 3951, HK-47 made a compelling argument to Mitras Sirk in favor of this theory. Quote, Observation. Master, I do not believe that the Mandalorians were the true target at Malachor. I believe that the intention was to destroy the Jedi, break their will, and make them loyal to Revan. I do not know if you examined the records of the deaths on Malachor, but you cannot escape that many of the Jedi and the Republic soldiers who died were not Revan's strongest supporters. Observation. I believe that Revan was cleaning house at Malachor V. What ones did not die became Revan's allies against the Republic. End quote. The Mandalorian's surrender marked the end of the Mandalorian Wars, which had lasted for 16 grueling years from 3976 to 3960. Almost immediately, the Jedi High Council on Coruscant demanded that Revan Malak and Maitre Surik return to have judgment done upon them. Revan and Malak refused, stating that they were following the remaining Mandalorians into the unknown regions. While that was outright fiction, the, the Council had no recourse because Revan and Malak took all that remained of the Republic fleet with them, disappearing from known space. Republic soldiers and Jedi Knights abandoned the galaxy when it needed them, when it needed them most, happily following Revan and Malak. While that concept might seem foreign to us, one of those defectors at Moran made a compelling argument to Mitra Surik about it in 3951. Quote, after Malachor, after the Mandalorian Wars, that's when the Sith teachings started spreading through the ranks. We knew where our loyalties lay to the Jedi who came to help us, not the ones who sat back on Dantooine and Coruscant watching us die. End quote. Now, Rand didn't know that Revan and Malak had fallen to the dark side before Malachor V, but it was a moot point. The soldiers loved Revan and Malak, and it didn't matter that they would soon return to the known galaxy with a vengeance. After she regained consciousness, Mitra Surik chose to return to Coruscant and face the music. She was deafened to the force, but was filled with righteous anger against the council and sought to throw their hypocrisy in their smug faces. She knew it wasn't going to do any good, but Mitra Surik had nothing left to lose, and those Jedi High Council jerks needed to be read the riot act. Despite being the only Jedi who fought with Revan and Malachor IV who didn't fall to the dark side, the Council cast her out. They denounced Mitra Surik as a warmonger and exiled her from the Order. For the rest of her life, Surik would be known for her, by her much more famous pseudonym, the Jedi Exile. Before departing, the Jedi ordered her to surrender her lightsaber, which she did by stabbing it into the center stone of the Council Chambers. Master Vuk Lamar later said of Sirk's trial, When you returned to us, we saw what had happened. You carry all those deaths at Malachor within you, and it has left a hole, a hunger that cannot be filled. Sirk then took the exile's path and went into the Outer Rim, where she traveled alone for some eight years until the Force called upon her again. The Battle of Malachor V truly was a turning point in galactic history. In fact, it changed so many things, we just decided to list them as bullet points to save time. Before Malachor V, the Mandalorians were a, a galaxy-spanning civilization and military. After Malachor V, the Mandalorians were so thoroughly broken that they couldn't reform a functioning society for 4,700 years. 
Before Malachor V, the Republic had been stabilized by the counteroffensive and it looked like things might be okay. After Malachor V, the Old Republic was pushed to its breaking point twice in eight years. At one point in 3951, it came within 30 standard days of totally fracturing. It's before Malachor V, Revan and Malak were heroes of the Republic, and they were to lead its rebuilding efforts. After Malachor V, let's just say that they don't call it the Jedi Civil War for nothing. Before Malachor V, the Sith were an afterthought. Even the Jedi didn't think that they had survived Exar Kun's war. After Malachor V, not only was there Revan's reconstituted Sith Empire to contend with, but also, eventually... Vitiate's true Sith Empire, and surprisingly, the two Sith Empires didn't see eye to eye. Before Malachor V, the Jedi Order still had more than 1,000 members and were viewed as the protectors of peace and justice in the Republic. After Malachor V, they would become a galactic afterthought, and the number of living Jedi plunged to as few as eight total members in 3951. Before Malachor V, there had never been a galactic civil war, after Malachor V, there were two in eight years. We'll let Kreia have the last word on Malachor V since she described its ruined state the best. In 3951, when denouncing a reconstituted Jedi Council, she said regarding Malachor V, quote, How could you ever hope to know the threat you faced when you never walked in the dark places of the galaxy? Faced war and death on such a scale. If you traveled far enough, rather than waiting for the echo to reach you, perhaps you would have seen it for what it was. There is a place in the galaxy where the dark side of the Force runs strong. It is something of the Sith, but it was fueled by war. It corrupts all that walk. It corrupts all that walk on its surface, drowns them in the power of the dark side. It corrupts all life, and it feeds on death. This brings us to Canon Alert Twenty. So it'll be a partial alert on Malachor, which we'll talk in much greater depth about its implications in the canon when we get to KOTOR 2. A world called Malachor was made canon by the animated series Star Wars Rebels in its season 2 finale, Twilight of the Apprentice. There, Malachor was also portrayed as a Sith tomb world that was the site of a huge cataclysm and a locus of the dark side power. But a few key changes were made. First, obviously, it's not Malachor 5 anymore, it's just Malachor. Second, despite the cataclysm, it's still an intact planet. Third, the Sith replaced the Mandalorians as the enemy of the Jedi. In canon, the cataclysm, now called the Great Scourge of Malachor, happened thousands of years before the events of Rebels in 3 BBY. And the Great Scourge occurred as a result of a Jedi attack against the Sith Witch and her Sith forces stationed at Malachor. Sith Witch is her title, we aren't editorializing for once. The climactic battle took place underground before a large pyramidal Sith temple. At some point, the temple was activated, which petrified the thousands of Jedi and Sith on Malachor, killing them instantly. Dave Filoni, executive director for Rebels, has stated that all these nods were intentional references to Malachor V, and specifically to Knights of the Republic II, from which much of the inspiration was drawn. We'll come back to Malachor, but wanted to mention it here since we've discussed Malachor 5 so much this episode. If you've read ahead to Knights of the Republic 2, think about who fits the title of Sith Witch and what location an underground Sith temple reminds you of, and we'll come back to it. If you're wondering where the canon alert is for the Jedi Mandalorian War, the analog to the Mandalorian Wars we've talked so much about, you can find it in episode 16. Revenge of the Sith. In late 3960, Revan and Malak had gone months without contact, and the Republic feared the worst. 
In actuality, the two hi- the two heroes were tracking a hidden Sith presence that Mandalore spoke of with his dying words. Revan and Malak ventured to Rekiad in the Unknown Regions, searching for some proof of Mandalore's claims. On Rekiad, the two friends followed Mandalore's instructions and found the sarcophagus of an ancient Sith Lord named Dramath II, who had been dead for more than a thousand years but left a Datacron in his tomb. Dramath's Datacron told of a world named Nathema where a powerful dark side ritual, ritual had been performed, so Revan and Malak followed the trail. Before departing, Revan left the Mask of Mandalore in Dramath's tomb so that the Mandalorians would never again unite under it. Traveling to Nathema, Revan and Malak learned the shocking truth. Not only was the Sith Empire not dead, it had been rebuilt in the unknown regions for over 1,000 years. In 4999, a powerful dark lord named Vitiate had performed Sith sorcery, which killed everyone and everything on Nathema, but left Vitiate, for all intents and purposes, immortal. Before leaving Nathema, Vitiate gathered his many remaining Sith Lords who still lived after Naga Sadal's disastrous war and took them to find Droman Kos in the Unknown Regions. Revan and Malak traveled to Droman Kos and attempted to blend in with the population living as mercenaries. After more than a month of recon, the two old friends discovered the Sith Emperor's plot to invade the Republic. They knew they had to do something, but warning the Republic would be far too easy and cause a lot of contradictions in the continuity, so Revan and Malak decided to attack Vitiate themselves. In the Sith Emperor's throne room on on Drummondkas, Revan and Malak entered with lightsabers drawn prepared to fight. They had badly underestimated Vitiate, who had been aware of their presence on Drummondkas and had sensed Revan through the Force on his visit to Malakor V. Instead of fighting Revan and Malak, the Sith Emperor reached out in the fort and dominated their minds, turning them into his willing servants. Just like that, the Supreme Commander of the Republic fleet, who had literally destroyed Mandalorian civilization for 4,700 years, was turned into a brainwashed thrall of the dark side. That's how powerful Vitiate is. Having seen into their minds and learned of the Star Forge, Vitiate instructed Revan and Malak to return to the galaxy, find the Rakatan Starforge, and decimate the Republic. They were to be the vanguard of his coming invasion. Malak and Revan then secretly set out set about finding the remaining star maps they acquired on Korriban, Manan, and Tatooine. In Korriban, Revan delved even deeper into the dark side after recovering Sith artifacts. By 3959, Revan and Malak had located the Star Forge above the Star Abo and the World Rakata Prime in the Lahon system. After double-crossing the native Rakata, Revan and Malak arrived at the 25,000-year-old superweapon. By the time by the time they reached the command deck of the Starforge, they had broken free of the Sith Emperor's mental domination, but not from the dark side. Revan and Malak then interpreted Vitiate's commands as their own ideas. Instead of serving as Vitiate's vanguard, they would lead a new Sith Empire based on the principles espoused by Naga Sadao, Exar Kun, and Freedon Nad. They named themselves the new Dark Lords of the Sith and took up Sith titles with Darth Revan becoming the master and Darth Malak as his Sith apprentice. Revan's Sith Empire formally took the Republic fleet as its own 
and prepared to invade the Republic, using the Starforge to pump out new ships, war droids, and other necessary war material. Revan had a twenty-year plan to overwhelm the Republic. Nearly all the forces under Revan and Malak swore fealty to them, as the Sith teachings had already filtered into their ranks. Jedi became dark Jedi and donned new red lightsabers, red-bladed lightsabers, just like Revan and Malak had done. And soldiers were outfitted with shiny chrome-plated armor, taking the name Sith Trooper. The Jedi Civil War. While no battles appear to have been fought in 3959, the Jedi Civil War is dated from Revan's establishment of his Sith Empire above the above Rakata Prime, even though the Republic didn't find out about the reemergent Sith until 3958. Instead, the Sith Empire spent the rest of 3959 preparing in secret. They retook the ancient Sith tomb world Korriban, established a new Sith Academy, Revan also used his political connections to establish a secret trade deal with the Serkai Corporation. In exchange for manufacturing and running the Sith supply networks, Zerka received a trade monopoly within the Empire. With their logistics shored up, Revan and Malak prepared to announce themselves to the rest of the galaxy. In early 3958, Sol Karath quietly abandoned the Republic, defecting to Revan's Sith Empire along with his flagship, the Leviathan. Using Karath's access codes, the Sith fleet bypassed Republic, Republic sensors at the Deep Core world, Forost, and decimated its orbital shipyards. It's the same Forost where the fallen Jedi Ulic Kaldroma kicked off the Great Sith War in 3996. As with the first attack, the Republic had no chance to respond, as the dock chips were either destroyed or stolen by Sith troopers and turned on the shipyards. In the end, thousands were dead, and the Republic was at war again less than two years after the Mandalorian Wars had ended. Now, you might ask why it's called the Jedi Civil War when it's clearly a Sith Empire fighting the Jedi Republic. Well, Knights of the Old Republic 2 companion Mikal has an answer. Quote, The reason the Jedi Civil War was named such was because few in the galaxy can recognize the difference between the Sith and the Jedi. To them, they are both Jedi with different philosophies. End quote. It was also called the Second Sith War, which seems more fitting, but they didn't ask us. They never do. Following the attack at Forost, Revan... Revan... Oh my god. <clears throat> Following the attack at Forost, Revan gave Admiral Saul Karath command of the entire Sith fleet. Darth Malak took the Leviathan as, as his flagship, and, and Karath remained on board to lead the Sith Navy. In a brutal test of Karath's loyalty, Malak ordered the destruction of the strategically important world of Telos IV. The Sith again slipped past Republic security undetected and destroyed the small Republic detachment stationed at Telos IV. Karath then proceeded to bomb the planet in such a way that the atmosphere was turned to acetic vapor capable of corroding starships. Millions died in the bombardment, including Karth Onassi's wife, while Onassi's son, Dustil, was one of the thousands missing. Telos IV had been the Onassi family's home before the bombing, and Karth was stationed with the Republic task force, but they were too late to save the planet. A few escape ships limped to safety and were, and were left by the Sith as witnesses to the devastation. Despite being a total success in, success in Darth Malak's eyes and proving Karas loyalty, Darth Revan was appalled as he had strategic plans for Telos IV. 
Later, the Sith attacked Republic forces above Iridonia. Despite salvaging their flagship and fending off the Sith, the Republic saw a number of ships defect to Revan's cause. Defections were an all-too-common occurrence for the Republic during the first two years of the Jedi Civil War. Following the Battle of Iridonia, the Republic tried... Uh, tried attacking the Sith fleet at Ethor, but they were defeated. However, the rift created between Revan and Malak by the bombing of Telos IV would only widen as the apprentice began to look for a way to betray and usurp his master. Geography of Revan's Sith Empire At its largest extent, the Sith Empire controlled one-third of the known galaxy. The bulk of that territory was a large, contiguous empire in the Outer Rim and Expansion region, this holding alone was far more than the Mandalorians had accomplished, but Revan's empire also carved out key scattered pockets in the heart of the Republic. Following a victory at the Battle of Yagdul in late 3958, the Sith King controlled a key part of the Rima trade route, the crossroads of the Corellia trade spine, and the whole of the Tapani sector. This gave the Sith control of important worlds like Corellia, Duro, Fondor, and Belasa, the contiguous Sith Empire, meanwhile, was pushed to its greatest extent after victories at Randon, Exila, and other systems in 3957. At that point, the contiguous Sith Empire stretched from Telos in the far north of the Outer Rim, west to Thustria in the expansion region, south to Dalang, and east past the Tion Cluster, where known space ends. Darth Revan and Darth Malak were able to find to build such an extensive empire so quickly due to numerous Republic defectors who remembered the heroes of the Mandalorian Wars. Finally, the Sith maintained two capitals, one in the ancient tomb world Korriban, and the other being the Starforge in the uncharted Lehon system. Don't worry, we know the geography is confusing. We'll put maps of galactic geography and troop movements for the Jedi Civil War in the show notes. As the Sith Empire established these boundaries, they should have easily overrun the Republic, but their advantages were hindered by bad luck and self-inflicted wounds from infighting. In either late 3958 or early 3957, the Sith lost the pivotal Battle of Rhodia due to bad luck after the Jedi caught an intel break. Darth Revan attempted to overwhelm the planet with the powerful Starforge fleet, but the Jedi found out about the attack early and called for aid. The Republic fleet and a number of Jedi reinforced Rhodia before the Sith arrived. The Republican Jedi did enough to hold off the Starforge fleet and drove the Sith out of the system. The battle was a turning point as the previously neutral, neutral Rhodia joined the Republic and because it marked the first major victory over the Sith. The Republic capitalized after Rhodia, halting the Sith advance to New Cov and winning victories at Mon Gaza and Lannick. Next, the Sith undermined their advance by shooting themselves in the foot, or should we say slicing themselves in the jaw. At some point in 3957, Malak relitigated the disagreement from Telos IV, implying that Revan was soft and unfit to lead the Sith. So the Master had heard enough of his student's bullshit and determined to teach him a lesson. Revan and Malak fought a tense lightsaber duel on the bridge of Revan's flagship, Rift began over that began over Talos IV was now a full-blown chasm, but despite Malak's power, Revan emerged victorious after shearing his apprentice's jaw clean off his face with a lightsaber strike. For the rest of his life, Malak would wear a large metal prosthesis covering most of his face below the nose, 
and speak through a vocabulator which made his voice sound hoarse and electronic. We've seen the former Jedi change names and looks a few times during the next Daily Mode comics, and now, finally, Darth Malak looks like the dollar store Darth Vader we all know and love from Knights of the Old Republic. He has a metal beard. That's what he has. It occurred to me the other day. Just has a metal beard. Which is really funny to me. Ending the war early was a Republic imperative by late 3957. In spite of the gains we discussed, the Republican Jedi were fully aware that they would be destroyed in any protracted war. The Republic had seen Revan's seemingly infinite Sith fleet and knew they couldn't withstand that onslaught forever. The Jedi still had no idea about the Star Forge and wouldn't for some time. Determined to stave off a very slow 20-year death, the Republican Jedi developed a plan. They would capture both Revan and Malak, depriving the Sith Empire of its, char- its charismatic leaders and hopefully causing the Sith Empire to fracture. After stealing codes from a Sith fleet commander, the Republic would lure the Sith Lords into a firefight using a small Republic fleet as bait, then infiltrate Revan's flagship under cover of space battle. To obtain the codes, a six-person strike team led by two Jedi named Anyara and Aldrin Deos traveled to Cernpedal in search of a Sith Admiral named Dole Shirk. After defeating the Admiral and his assault th- assault droids, the Serpadal strike team retrieved Dole Sherp's code cylinder and then escaped to an unknown outer rim system. There, the Serpadal team rendezvoused with the second strike team led by Jedi Knight Bastel Shan and the Republic fleet that was being used as bait. Shan's team was a mixed unit of Republic commandos and Jedi Knights that would follow the Serpadal team in and head directly for the Dark Lord's command deck. All that was left to do was to wait for the Sith to take the bait. The Capture of Darth Revan The Republic trap worked as the Sith took the bait and a small naval battle ensued in the unknown Outer Rim system. Skirmish provided ample cover for both strike teams to board Revan's flagship, bypassing the sensor fields with the codes found in Dole Sherp's aforementioned code cylinder. The... Sermpadal team then cleared the way for Shan's team after defeating a minor Dark Jedi named Darth Morin and taking over the ship's security systems. In case you're wondering, we don't know why this person used the title Darth when no other Dark Jedi when other Dark Jedi did not. Bastila's strike team successfully made it to the bridge, but not without sustaining heavy losses. As the team arrived on the bridge, it had been reduced to five members, Bastila Shan, three other Jedi, and one Republic soldier. What happened next is one of the most famous flashbacks and cutscenes from the Old Republic, Shan's team facing down Darth Revan on the bridge of his flagship. Before they can even attack, Bastila's team is reduced to four members after Revan force-choked the lone Republic soldier to death. Revan, still wearing his trademark mask and wielding a red-bladed lightsaber, promptly readied himself for the duel, but it wasn't to be. In that brief moment, a funny thing happened. Darth Malak had a bright idea. Having somehow sensed the plan, Darth Malak decided to kill two birds with one stone and betrayed his Sith Master. On Malak's orders, the Leviathan unleashed all its guns on Revan's flagship, turning it into so much burning wreckage. Malak assumed Revan and the strike team had been killed and departed with much of his fleet. Unbeknownst to them, however, Bastila and Revan both survived the Leviathan's attack. Shan was briefly knocked unconscious, while Revan barely clung to life after sustaining numerous critical injuries. 
As Revan's flagship foundered, Bastila saw the chance to complete her mission and use the Force to preserve Revan's life, creating an intensely strong Force bond between the two. After Revan was stabilized, Bastila escaped with the unconscious Dark Lord and headed for Dantooine. The Dantooine Jedi Enclave then decided in total secrecy to rebuild Revan's shattered amnesiac mind into a blank slate soldier who is loyal to the Republic. After all, what greater weapon is there to turn an enemy to your cause to use their own knowledge against them? As 3956 dawned, Darth Malak, believing his master to be dead, assumed the title of Sith Master and decided to put his stamp on the Sith Empire by shifting its focus. Gone were the days of Revan's tactical genius, his careful calculations, and his 20-year plan. They were replaced by Malak's penchant for destruction and wanton slaughter using the Star Forge to bolster his forces. Revan had intended to overtake the Republic and keep much of its structure intact, but Malak just wanted to watch the galaxy burn. According to Sith custom, Malak also chose a new Sith apprentice from the ranks of the Empire's growing Legion of Dark Jedi, elevating a human who took the Sith moniker Darth Bandon. Whatever you do, for the love of God, don't call him Darth Brandon. Around this time, Malak also took notice of Bastilla Shan and greatly feared her use of a rare force ability, battle meditation. Malak was right to fear battle meditation could affect the outcomes of even very large naval battles and ground offensives. Knowing this, the Jedi Republic soon employed Shan's battle meditation and began to push back against the Sith advance. Thus, Malak used all the power at his disposal to find and either capture or kill Shan. I'm being completely serious when I say this. One of my favorite things about Knights of the Old Republic is how it is one of the best Star Wars stories ever, and one of its principal villains is named Darth Bandon. Uh, it feels like like that Futurama joke where they have to like yes. they're running out of bad Star Wars names and you get to like Darth Sploder. Yes. No, that that yes, that's exactly exactly what it is. Like I don't I, I don't even get it. Like at least at least they normally have like malevolent words in there, you know. Darth uh, like abandoned? Yeah. Like I like just drop the A. <laughs> that's worse than taking your own name and just adding Darth to it. Um, you know, like that's <laughs> wow. Uh, to the to that end, in early thirty nine fifty six, the Sith successfully tracked Shan's ship, the Indar Spire, and Malak set a trap above the Outer Rim World Terrace. Malak's flagship, the Leviathan, was an interdictor class cruiser and would use its interdictor field to rip Shan's Republic transport out of hyperspace, kind of like a less powerful mass shadow generator. Unaware of the trap, the Indar Spire, a Hammerhead-class Corvette uh, cruiser, hurtles through hyperspace carrying with, carrying with it an all-star crew, including Republic Lieutenant Carther Nassi and Ensign Trask Algo, the bravest damn character in Star Wars history. Oh yeah, and some no-name amnesiac Republic soldier who seems like he's trying to sleep off a bad hangover. With a sudden jolt, the Indar Spire is pulled out of hyperspace by the Leviathan and forced into a skirmish with Sith forces. And with that, as you're no doubt aware, Bioware's 2003 RPG Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic begins, and we'll start there next week. Thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we'll create our character, pick out a suitably terrible name. I'm looking for a 
Darth Bandon here for inspiration. Yes. We'll wake up on the NR Spire. <laughs> Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. Follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments and Sith names like Darth Bandon that you think we should mention, and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. And I'm Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.